Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. I think is recording, so I just want to say thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have you on. As as you know, we talked with one of your former students, uh, Dr. Sarah Place, the other day, and we're trying yeah. to, uh, you know, Zach and I kind of inhabit this uh, athletic nutrition sphere, and we're both big proponents of, you know, animal products in the diet. And I think there's a uh, really big sort of misconception on on what we know about how they're raised, what their impact is how essential they are to the human diet. And I think there's a lot of, you know, currently there's a big sort of push to try to drive us away from eating animal products and, you know, push more and more to uh, a plant-based sort of uh, future. And I think a lot of that is based upon some uh, impact on the environment, which I think is, is the data on that I think is unclear. And I think there's been a loud narrative that says that, the best thing you can do for the environment is to, to not eat a steak. And I think there's, you know, I think people like you can help set the record straight on that. And I know you you call yourself the greenhouse gas guru. So my, my assumption is, you know, a little bit about greenhouse gases. And so can you, can you just kind of tell us a little bit about your background, you know, what, what you've been studying and then we can kind of get into some of these topics and hopefully clear some of the confusion up or at least give people some, some more data to use when they make their decisions. Yeah, maybe we first uh, introduce ourselves real quickly. So my name is Frank Mitterner and, and Zach, uh, who is Zach? Uh, right Zach here. <laughs> you are Zach. And what's your last name? Bitter. Bitter, okay. And where are you? Where are you located? I'm actually in Phoenix, but uh, I was actually in Davis for about a year and then Sacramento for a year and a half. So I was kind of in your neck of the woods for a while. Okay. All right. And And you are... I'm in. I'm actually in Southern California, in Orange County, and okay. uh, so. But both from all the places, I was actually born in what I'm guessing is your home country, Germany. <laughs> oh, you were okay. <laughs> I was born in. I was born in Hof, Germany, and I just, just listening to your last name and, and a bit of your accent. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Make, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say you. You have some familiarity with that part of the world. Yes, I do. I do. I do. Yeah, I'm a native from Germany, and uh, when I was 27, I moved from Germany to to Texas, where I did my PhD, and then came to California in 2002 and I'm a professor and air quality specialist in the Department of Animal Science and uh, I have been here at UC Davis for quite a while and uh, I'm one of a very few uh, faculty members in the country who is specialized in the environmental footprint of livestock and particularly um, the footprint livestock has on the air environment on things like volatile organic compounds or ammonia other odorous gases or particles and most importantly to our discussion here today, greenhouse gases. Absolutely. That's, I'm glad we have you on here because there's, there's not that many people that really, I think, understand that. We have a lot of information that's given to us via sort of uh, uh, documentary films, and sometimes those are agenda-driven, and I don't think the people that really make those have, have such a deep understanding about where in, where in Texas were you? What, what university were you at? I was at Texas Tech University in Lubbock. 
I, I spent time, I, I finished my medical school uh, there at Texas Tech, so I'm very oh, well familiar with Lubbock, Texas. Yeah, a lot of cotton nice. fields and uh, yes. <laughs> not much else out there, but it's an interesting place. So let's let's talk about, you know, okay, let me, I know that there was a, there was a study, and Dr. Place went in this, there was a life cycle study done around 2006, 2007, where they, they compared uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, of livestock versus transportation and all these other other sectors. And I know you're highly critical of that study. Can you, can you kind of give us a little background on that? The study was called Livestock's Long Shadow. It was authored by the United Nations FAO, um, that stands for Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. And um, Livestock's Long Shadow was the title. And um, the reason why it was a big deal was because it was the first landmark study on life cycle emissions of livestock. And life cycle refers to the comprehensive impact livestock has. Uh, in all its forms. So, for example, if you were to consume a gallon of milk, then the environmental footprint of that gallon of milk would not just extend to how much the animal belches or how much comes off the manure, but it would also include the impacts of fertilizer, pesticide use, uh, soil emissions, feed emissions, uh, feed being fed to animals, then resulting belching coming from the front end of these animals, um, that's actually the number one greenhouse gas source of ruminant livestock, uh, belched gas, belched methane, that's originating in this very large uh, rumen of these animals, the stomach. Um, so, and then it extends all the way on to manure, and uh, sooner or later the product is then harvested and processed or transported to a supermarket or your kitchen. And eventually you are putting it in your mouth and you're swallowing it. And that's the that's the grave of that product, okay? So cradle to grave is another word for life cycle. Cradle to grave analysis had been done by the FAO for all of livestock in 2006 in Livestock's Long Shadow. And they actually did a good job on this. They described what the environmental footprint of livestock is on the environment. But where they messed up was when they compared livestock to transportation. They said that livestock produces 18% of our greenhouse gases, and they added by saying, and this is a greater share than transportation. And that's where they were wrong, because they used different, te uh, different methodologies to measure the impact of livestock on the environment versus the impact of transportation on the environment. For livestock, they used what's called a life cycle assessment, and uh, looking at all the related impacts. And for transportation, they only looked at tailpipe emissions, meaning they didn't look into the production of cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships, the steel that goes into it, the rubber, the tar for the roads, and uh, the concrete for the harbors and airports and so on, but only tailpipe emissions. And so that was a classical apples to oranges comparison that I critiqued publicly in a, and, and also uh, in a peer-reviewed journal article and the authors of Livestock's Long Shadow conceded and agreed with my criticism and retracted part of it. So just to, to sort of follow up on that, if we were to compare tailpipe to tailpipe or you know cow belching and manure uh, production exclusively looked at that data versus the tailpipe auto emission or transportation emissions, what, what kind of numbers might we be looking at? Has that, has that calculation been done, or do we have an idea where we could put things in a better perspective? So the question then becomes, your question is a very important one. The question then becomes, at what scale are we making these comparisons? Those people who are critics of livestock 
like to use the global number by the FAO. Originally it was 18%, then later it was revised to 14.5%. And they use that 14.5% to sway U.S. consumers from, from eating meat and consuming other animal products, saying that livestock consumption leads to a greater impact on the environment than transportation choices. Okay, that's what they say. However, in the United States, livestock uh, contributes to 3.8% of our greenhouse gases. Transportation to 26%. So a little bit less than 4% for livestock, 26% for transportation, 31% for energy production and use. So if you look at it on a global basis, on a global scale, and by the way, the numbers I just cited are EPA numbers. Uh, these are the official emission inventory numbers by the EPA. 3.8% for livestock, 26% for transportation, 31% for energy production and use. Now, as you know, greenhouse gases are not something that we are concerned about on the regional scale, but we are concerned about it because they have global impacts, right? If we were to produce less greenhouse gases in California, uh, because we have 100 dairies packing up and going to Arizona, and then they are producing in Arizona, we haven't gained anything because now they are producing the same gas over there. And greenhouse gases are a global issue, okay? So let's say, let me just give you a few numbers. Globally, all greenhouse gases in the world combined from all sources make up 49 gigatons of greenhouse gases, 49 gigatons of greenhouse gases. Of that, approximately 10, so 10 of the 49, 10 gigatons comes approximately from the United States. And of all greenhouse gases in the world, of all greenhouse gases in the world, human, sorry, of all greenhouse gases in the world, U.S. plant production produces 0.6%. And animal production in the United States produces 0.5% of all global greenhouse gases. So if all Americans would stop eating livestock today and become vegans, then we would reduce the carbon footprint of the world by approximately 0.36%. So, and people are wondering what kind of a holistic effect would it be if we were to change our, our, our diets? For example, at Johns Hopkins Center for Livable Future, they have the so-called Meatless Monday movement, or they established it, and they are claiming that uh, a Meatless Monday would have a profound impact on our nation's or the world's carbon footprint. I think that this is misleading and this is misguided, and it leads us to a wrong path for solution because by far the greatest impact of human activity on greenhouse gases is through the use of fossil fuel. They know it, the makers of plant-based alternatives to meat know it. Um, the critics of animal agriculture, they all know it. But they like to mislead the public by using global numbers that totally distort the impact livestock has on uh, ecosystems here or anywhere. Let me uh, 
you know, because the global numbers, you know, I, I don't think we can totally discount the global numbers because someone sitting in, in you know, right. Ecuador is still going to be impacted by what's going on in China or India or something like that. And so how do we address the fact that there is, you know, a greater con contribution in global numbers? I know if if the rest of the world were to adopt, say, U.S. efficiency practices, you know, then those numbers would, would dramatically re reduce. But again, that's not necessarily doable in all cases just because the infrastructure is not there and perhaps it, the the the, the geographic, uh, you know, realities. You know, we have we have relatively large pasture areas in the United States. Some parts of the world don't have that. Uh, rainfall numbers are different. You know, there's there's a whole bunch of things that go into that. But how do we write? How do we sort of uh, sort of come to terms with the fact that, you know, there are issues with with livestock production in other parts of the world. Assuming we're going to use the U.S. as a model, and there's a lot of criticism about the U.S. system. I know there's a lot of people that are heavily critical about the fact that we feed our animals grain. I think there's a lot of misconception regarding that, and hopefully we can go into that a little bit. But what do we do about the people that are saying, you know, in Brazil, they're chopping down a bunch of the Amazon uh, because Brazil's not as efficient at producing cattle. You know, they have twice as many cattle as the U.S. does, and still they put out less less beef production than we do. So what do we, what do, how do we address those those issues? Because people are going to say the number one cause of deforestation, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere, is livestock production. So what do you, what do you have to say regarding that, if you can? So first of all, uh, I by no means want to disregard um, the impact livestock has on the environment, uh, particularly in those countries that are less efficient. Let me give you a few examples. In the United States, uh, we produce about 22 to 25,000 pounds of milk per cow per year. 22 to 25,000 pounds of milk per cow per year. In Mexico, it takes about four to five times the number of cows to produce the same amount of milk as one cow here. In India, it takes 20 times the number of cows to produce the same amount of milk as one cow here. So what I'm telling you is that there are vast differences in efficiencies in livestock production around the world. It's basically a comparison, um, just to drive it home, between what we did here in the United States in the 1950s versus what we do today. In the 1950s, we used to have 25 million dairy cows in the United States. 25. Today we have 9 million dairy cows. So much fewer dairy cows, but this much smaller herd produces 60% more milk. That's a profound difference in efficiency, and it directly relates to environmental impact. So, for example, just to drive home an analogy to your listeners, if you're concerned about vehicle emissions, you know that there are vehicles that are very fuel efficient and others that are gas guzzlers. The ones that are gas guzzlers consume a lot of gas to get you 100 miles from A to B, and every time they burn gas, they produce emissions. The vehicle, the gas guzzler, is less efficient and has greater emissions. The same is true for livestock. For example, in the United States, it takes on average about 14, that's one for 14 months to get a beef animal to slaughter. In Africa, that can take 10 to 20 years. Even a grass-finished animal in the United States takes about twice as long as a corn-finished animal, simply because what they eat is less energy, less nutrient-dense, and so on, therefore it takes them longer. When something takes longer, it means more nutrients go into that animal. There's more time for belching, for manure production, and so on. Cumulatively, the environmental footprint 
is much higher in animals that are less efficient. Just like the environmental footprint is much worse in gas-guzzling vehicles versus those that are efficient. So there are vast differences in different regions in the world. We happen to be the region in the world that is most efficient in the livestock sector. And the reason why we have become that way is because we have learned to use techniques, technologies that, that enable us to do so. We have learned uh, to appreciate a veterinary system that prevents disease in animals, that cures disease. We have learned to use high genetic material in animals and plants. We have learned to optimize the feed going into livestock to optimize the growth curve of these animals. Um, and all of that cumulatively has allowed us to achieve record low numbers of livestock, poultry, and dairy. We've never had fewer livestock than we have today. Most of your listeners will not know that we only have 9 million dairy cows in the United States today. 9 million. In comparison, we have 9.5 million horses. We have more horses in this country than dairy cows. I tell you one thing, those critics of livestock will never bring up the issue of horses and their environmental footprint, again, more than dairy cows, or the fact that we have 140 million dogs and cats eating a high-protein diet that rivals the diet of humans. In fact, our pet population in the United States consumes the equivalent amount of nutrients as 70 million people. You will never hear Peter and HSUS and the others talk about the environmental footprint of horses, cats, or, or dogs. Just ask yourself why. If they were really after the topic, they would not cancel those ones out. They would address them, but it tells you what their true agenda is. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anybody that questions the agenda of PETA and some of the animal rights organizations, and certainly they've been very uh, effective at getting their message out, you know, and I, I think the, the the problem is a lot of people that don't have much insight into this, the sort of the, the layman in the public sort of has taken their, their sort of uh, assessment of the environmental impact at face value, and they don't question it, and I think that's why having folks like you on can talk about this, but yeah, I mean, horses, uh, obviously they have an environmental impact. I assume, I mean, they're not ruminants, but I mean, I so I suppose they have a methane footprint, you know, dogs and cats. Obviously, I have two dogs at home, and I know they feed, they eat quite a bit of food. They probably eat the same as my child does. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a very valid point. Let me, because this is something that's very, you know, and I'm, I'm a huge proponent of eating beef, and I ate a lot of it, and, you know, I think it's a wonderful, healthy superfood. There is a lot of criticism, even among people that are in support of eating animal products, about the fact that we feed animals grain. And we, I want to talk about that because there's a lot of people that think we should go to an entirely grass-based system. Can you talk about the realities of that? Can you talk about the fact that some people say, well, feeding these animals grain is, one, unhealthy for the animal, and two, it has its own environmental footprint. You know, I know you put up a statistic the other day on Twitter about Iowa corn consumption. I know you said something like, you know, most of the corn in Iowa goes to ethanol and corn syrup production. We don't hear people criticizing the environmental impact of that sort of grain production. Can you kind of give us an overview of that sort of topic? Because I think it's something that's very contentious. Uh, and it I is. Think, I think it we need. To, I need. I think we just need more information on this. I'm not trying to make a decision, you know, a judgment one way or the other. But I think it does everyone good to have as much information as possible before they start, you know, making decisions. 
Yeah, so uh, what's interesting is that the corn-producing states in the United States uh, are by and large not really producing human edible grains. But the vast majority of the grains that are grown there, corn and soy, particularly corn, end up uh, in non-human edible uh, places or um, um, commodities. So, for example, Iowa is the number one corn-producing state in the United States, and well over 50, well over well between 40 and 50 percent, depending upon the year that you are interested in, of the total corn crop in Iowa goes into corn ethanol as fuel for vehicles. Here in California, for example, 10% of the, the fuel that you put into your tank must be ethanol. And the vast majority of that ethanol comes from corn. So as a comparison, all of the, the corn in, in Iowa, um, of all the corn, 25% goes into livestock. But the majority of that 25 number goes into pigs, into pigs and chickens, namely 20%. And 5% goes into beef. So, of the the Iowa corn crop, 50% approximately goes into ethanol as fuel, and 5% goes into beef cattle. And these are numbers by the USDA and backed up by the Iowa Department of Agriculture, uh, for those people who question that. Uh, the same is true for Nebraska and other corn-producing states. So, in my opinion, uh, the criticism of feeding corn is... Uh, is an ill-advised one. Now, there are people who say, well, but um, one of the byproducts of ethanol production are distillers grains, and they are fed to cattle. And I say, well, thank God there are ruminant animals, because if there weren't ruminant animals like cattle, then what would you do with these waste products of ethanol production? You would put them on a, on a, on a waste uh, dump. Uh, that can't be your, your, true, your true opinion, can it? Now, let me tell you um, another part of the story. Now, first of all, I am a big proponent of using ruminant livestock in agriculture. Oftentimes, people say the following. They say 70%, 70 of all agricultural land is used for livestock, and that's wrong. All of you have heard that. Well, that number is not incorrect, but it leaves out something very important. The vast majority of the agricultural land in the United States is called marginal land. Marginal means that you can't grow crops directly because you either don't have sufficient soil quality or you don't have enough water. That so-called marginal land, and that's 70% of all agricultural land in the country, that marginal land can only be used by one or for one by one commodity, and that's ruminant animals. Only ruminant animals can utilize that 70% of all agricultural land. You cannot grow crops such as soy or corn or anything else there because of the, the, uh, uh, those, those issues I just mentioned on soil quality and water. So 30%, the remaining 30% of land in the United States, agricultural land, is arable. And that arable land can be used uh, for anything. You can grow crops there. You can do anything you want. And a sizable portion of that is also used to grow crops for livestock. That's true. The 70% of the total agricultural land, the one that's marginal, can only be used by livestock, by ruminant livestock, and nobody else. 
And the the portion of the, the arable land that's going into livestock feed is actually going into commodities that make a very efficient conversion. Many people say they are not con they are not efficient, but indeed they are very efficient. Our livestock has become uh, more efficient than ever before. Um, there is just there's just no doubt about that. Um, so ruminant animals take largely non-edible feedstuff and make it into human edible protein, and that means they are great upcyclers. And that's a story people don't tell but should. And pigs and poultry do eat human edible uh, crops, but they are very efficient in that conversion, much more efficient than cattle are, than ruminants are. So, so to me, what we have seen here over the last few years is a very good example of uh, use of land for livestock production. And uh, I do not agree with the critics as to whether we should use more. Let me add one more one more item. Um, oftentimes I hear what you just mentioned before, which is if you must eat, let's say, beef, only eat grass-fed beef. I think uh, there is definitely a place for grass-fed for grass and for grass-finished beef, but it's a small niche market within the total beef sector. Um, if you think of a of of a steer, then they have a steer or a heifer. They have a 50 gallon rumen where the feed is fermented. Non-human edible feed is fermented. What produces methane in that rumen, in that stomach of these animals? What produces the methane are methanogens. These are mi microbes that do not tolerate any oxygen, and they must have, in order to produce methane, they must have roughage. Another word for roughage is fiber. The more roughage or fiber they have in the diet, the more methane they produce. The reason why you hardly see any animals belching in a beef cattle feedlot is that there's very little roughage in the diet and a lot of corn. In contrast, animals on pasture eat roughage all day long. And that means their methane production is maximized. And here's the other issue. If you compare a corn-finished versus a grass-finished steer, the corn-finished steer will finish 14, 15, 16 months of age and go to the, to the packing plant, whereas his or her peer from uh, a grass-finished system will go to the packing plant 26 to 30 months of age. So it will be about twice as old. And that means when an animal is twice as old, it has much more time to belch, much more time to produce manure, more time to consume water, feed, and so on. So overall, the environmental footprint of grass-finished animals is not lower, but many scientists, or most will say, is higher. So that discussion of, uh, hey, let's move entirely or so into grass-finished uh, products is ill-advised, in my opinion. One of the things we, we kind of touched on with Dr. Place is said that even if you felt that, that grass finishing your animal was, was the right thing to do for various, you know, quote unquote, ethical reasons, or you felt that it somehow was a net positive to the soil, um, only certain regions of the, of the country will actually support that. Can you talk about the folks that say that uh, the methane production is offset by gains in soil? Um it's not offset by gains in soil. So um, it's true that pasture 
land, you know, rangeland is a sink for carbon emissions. That's true. So what happens is if animals uh, excrete on land and that manure is then entrenched in the ground, then this ground will convert from dirt into soil. What I mean by that is it will be microbially enriched. Microbes will grow in it and they will uh, take, um, let's say, carbon and other elements and convert it into, uh, into rich topsoil. And that carbon is then stored in the soil. That's called carbon sequestration. So when you do a good job on grazing land with livestock, you improve um, the sink function of soil drastically, and that's called carbon sequestration. Um, but if you have animals on there that are net emitters of methane, then that methane emission will not be offset by the carbon sequestration of the soil. It will help, but it will not um, be at the same level. That's interesting, it... I think. Oh, sorry, Sean. I was just gonna like ask one thing that kind of fits in with what we've talked about too, along kind of like the question of ethics versus the question of uh, like sustainability and all that stuff is like one, one uh, I think it was a tweet or message that I saw you sent out that I thought was particularly interesting because we talked about this with Dr. Place as well, was this just idea of, um, you know, how farming is occurring and like the prominence of this like kind of buzzword of factory farming um, or feedlots more or less. And uh, um, the the quote that was particularly interesting to me was that you, you mentioned that there's like about 89 million beef cattle raised in the United States. And of those 89 million, only about 14 million at any one given time is actually on a feedlot with the remainder being, you know, out on grass. So like 80% of our cattle, beef cattle are essentially out on grass, you know, doing what they're, they would be doing naturally, not necessarily like this picture of prison or like entrapment, like you would expect in some of these worst case scenario, maybe feedlot situations that you see popping up on like YouTube and things like that. Um, is that something that uh, is very well calculated or something that is like gonna is being looked at in terms of uh, I guess uh, the, the efficiency of the whole system like is is that is that number where you think it needs to be or is that something that is like needs to be addressed even more just from the what you just mentioned with uh, the offset of carbon and that sort of thing so the majority of um or many of the people who publish uh, along the lines of emissions from livestock make one big mistake. And that mistake is that they say the vast majority of beef in the United States is corn finished. And so they say we have 90 million approximately beef cattle, the vast majority are corn finished. And so they take an emission factor per animal and multiply it by 90 million. And that is total baloney because the vast majority of beef animals are in a support function of those animals that actually are finished in feedlots. Um, meaning, of the 90 million, the vast majority are cows and bulls and calves, and the approximately 14, 15 million that are feedlot animals are heifers and steers that will stay in the feedlot for four months. But they live a total of 14, 15 months 
So even the ones that go through feedlots will have spent at least two-thirds of their lifetime on pasture before they go into the feedlot. I am very critical of the notion that a feedlot is prison-like. A feedlot is not prison-like. A feedlot, in fact, um, is a system that is intensive. It's not pasture-based. It is uh, an intensive system. But the animals reside in there for four months. Their diets are formulated by a PhD nutritionist. They have veterinary oversight nonstop. Um, they have about 130 to 150 square foot of space per animal. And, if, and that's, that's standard in the industry. Um, so is it the picturesque animal on pasture? No, it's not. It is not pleasing to the eye. But it's certainly not even close to being a prison-like atmosphere or uh, something inhumane, something uh, cruel or so. I have seen dozens of feedlots in my life. I have worked with feedlots because um, there were issues that I believe needed to be addressed. They have been addressed. This industry is moving very aggressively in optimizing those issues that are of societal concern. So I think even in those pictures that are not pleasing to the eye to many consumers, um, conditions of those animals by, are by and large uh, more than acceptable. That was another thing that Dr. Place touched on too, is like with a lot of that kind of more or less propaganda with the feedlot stuff is that, you know, they'll take a picture like right as they're kind of being fed. So you see this kind of gathering of, of the cattle all in kind of a, a tight quarter when in reality, if you would take a video camera and show it right. for like the entirety of the day, you know, they're not jammed in there like that. They're just there because that's when the, the rancher came through and put the feed in their troughs and they were all going there to get that. And, um, you know, the other, yes. the other kind of interesting thing I saw too with, in relation to that is we're quick to say that that's less than ideal for, for the animals. But then when we look at ourselves as humans, you know, we all collect in restaurants and grocery stores and things. And it, if you'd look at it in the same way, it's like, are we, are we, are we putting ourselves in those same positions or are we, are we putting these, these cattle in a, in a same scenario that we are our own selves? So, you know, it really depends on the lens you look at it, I think. And, you know, some people are choosing to look at it in a lens in a way that is as negative as possible and you know you can always try to paint a picture the way you want to if you try hard enough yeah but uh, people in agriculture have part of the blame for that uh, and here's why um, it kind of drives me a little crazy when i walk through davis california and i see one truck after the other um, of dairy trucks of creamery trucks uh, with a happy California cow depicted on it, uh, standing on pasture, and in the background is the red barn of the 1960s. <laughs> uh, this is the picture that is being painted for the public of this picturesque and romantic and humanized environment of animals that are human-like. Okay, They're having a good old time, they're talking to each other, they're making fun of the nearby sheep, and so on. I think it's a big mistake. I think it's a big mistake. These are not our pets. These are not our family members. They are animals that produce food that we consume. Or they themselves become food that we consume. They are not our buddies. They are not our friends. They are animals uh, that will end up on our plate one way or the other. We must stop romanticizing, in my opinion, uh, livestock because what we are raising there is food and not a buddy. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is 
because I teach hundreds of students here. We have 1,500 students in animal science here at UC Davis, and they all go through my classes. And when I first get in contact with them, I'm amazed how they think, how much they think they know about animal protein and livestock, how little they actually know indeed. And, uh, and then when I dig in deeper and find out what the exposure to animals has been in their lifetimes, then the only exposure was through their pets, dogs and cats. But don't think they call them animals. Don't think they even call them pets. They call them family members. And that's the only exposure they've had to animals. And now they're exposed to advertisement showing happy California cows and showing you know, cute little piggies and, and so on and so on. And they get that feel for why would anybody put something as cute as that, uh, as human-like as that, into a cage or into a any kind of confinement situation. It has to stop. This is not in the best interest of people who raise those animals to portray them as as um, as half humans. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very valid point. I've made this point. I mean, we're not raising these animals to be athletes. They're not going to be creating poetry. They're not going to be going to, to uh, engineering school. I mean, their their ultimate destination is on our plate, and I think we really need to understand that. One of the criticisms about you know, and and I've read quite a bit about you know the feedlots, and I understand they have. X amount of room, you say something like 150, you know, square feet. My understanding is they don't even use that because they're herd animals. They cluster together naturally. Anyway, so they're given more room than they actually need. Another one of the criticisms that always comes out is that animals in feedlot are much sicker than animals on pasture. I think there's some misconception about that. I know that, uh, you know, we have, you know, vets on by, standing by. There's pen riders that check on every single animal every single day is my understanding. Can you talk about, because I hear from people that actually are big proponents of sort of the grass finished, the past, the fully pastured animals. And they will say, even though they're ranchers themselves, they'll say that their animals are much more healthy and happier. What do you, what, what do you say to those folks that are in the industry that say that, you know, their animals are happier on grass? So the whole notion of happier, I think is, uh, is one of the ones that I just addressed. I, I don't think we should humanize animals. Okay. To say an animal, a cow is happy. Um, to me is, it's pretty ludicrous, okay? I mean, what what defines whether a cow is happy? You show me a happy cow and compare that to an unhappy cow. To me, that's uh, anthropomorphizing this. But, um, you know, the question is, is the welfare better of the one versus the other? And um, so you can have situations on a pasture, on a ranch, where, let's say, after a long drought or just the end of the growing season for pasture, there's not much much to eat, okay? It's happening in California right around now. After eight months or so of, of no rain, the pastures are brown. Okay, there's not much to eat. Animals under these conditions, one could argue, don't have the best of welfare right now because they don't have enough to eat. Oftentimes, they need to walk long distances to get to a watering hole. Well, some people would say that's not great. Oftentimes, they won't be seen by a veterinarian or ever in a long time. Some people would say that's not great. Uh, if you contrast that to a feedlot where the animals are fed every day, not just are they fed, but they are fed a diet that's optimized by PhD nutritionists. They are seen by um, pen riders every day, as you said. If anybody gets sick, they are moved uh, on horseback 
to the hospital pens and then they are treated um, you could argue you could argue the one system is better welfare or the other to say the one is bad just because it's more intensive in my opinion is misleading and I don't want you to get me wrong I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with pastured cattle or with feedlot cattle I'm just saying you could play the, the devil's advocate in both cases but I would say that by and large the vast majority of ranchers and feedlot operators are doing the best they can to maximize, to optimize the welfare of animals, um, to minimize the environmental footprint they have, not just because they are regulated to do so, but because that is their legacy. What people don't understand is, if you are a farmer, if you are a rancher, the plot of land you have is your legacy. You want to pass that on to your kids. Okay? That means you want to make it, you want to keep it as is or make it better. You don't want to degrade it. So the notion of farmers ruining the land that they are running is, is ridiculous. The most of the ranches, most of the farms I've seen in my life, and I've seen many, not just here, but internationally, in countries like Paraguay or Australia or South Africa or other places, um, most of these places envy us for what we have here. And we have this constant barrage on what our farmers do wrong and should do better. Uh, should do better by people who don't have the slightest idea what they're talking about. I have to say it that way, and I don't mean to be belittling or degrading or so, but I'm telling you, most of the people I hear talking about uh, welfare of animals and environmental footprint of livestock and so on don't have the slightest idea what they're talking about. They have never set foot. On any of these operations, they have never talked to these people. Unfortunately, most of the farmers, most of the ranchers are very private people, don't like to talk about it. They need to stop being private about it and need to engage. And that's very important. Because if they don't talk about it, their special friends on the other side will. I agree 100%. And, you know, I'm going to have the opportunity to speak in front of the U.S. Cattlemen's Association next month. And that's one of the points I'm going to bring up because, you know, we see what the public perception is. And basically, it's the wrong perception. And hopefully, these people that are involved in the industry, that's one of the reasons bringing people like yourself on, Dr. Place, and some other folks that, that, that come on to the show, we can kind of get that message out there. Talk to me. Let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about water. You know, we hear that, that to, to produce a, 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 a pound of beef, it takes. Five million gallons of water, or some ridiculous number. Can you, can you talk a little bit about those numbers? And I understand it. It, it again, it also varies by region. You know, some places are more water intensive, some are less. Can you, can you clarify some of the data? Because it seems to me the the sort of the proponents of the uh, everybody should eat plants sort of category uses the worst numbers and the worst of the worst scenarios to paint the overall picture. Can you, can you give enlighten us a little bit about water consumption? It seems to me that. The water topic is more of a political topic than it is a real topic. Depending upon uh, whether you like livestock or not and um, what your political orientation is, uh, is the numbers you use for livestock. You have people using ranges of water consumption for one animal species that are outrageous. And here is why they are outrageous there are different types of water there is blue water that's coming out of a water faucet then there's green water and that's coming from the sky and then there are other types of water like gray water and so on 
if you are pro-livestock, if you are a farmer, and you are asked what your water consumption is, then you will quote the number of or the amount of water that's coming out of a faucet or out of a well. Okay. Um, if you are a critic of livestock, then you count all the water, including rainwater. The reason why they get these huge numbers, these critics, why they get these huge numbers is because they count the rainwater that falls on a ranch that grows the forage that's eaten by cattle. But that rainwater would fall no matter what. If cattle weren't there, it would still fall. That water would still fall and would still be partly uptaken by, by crops, by, by pasture, uh, and some of it would go into the groundwater and so on. Uh, the fact that cattle eat some of that grass, that previously consumed water, uh, and then counting that per unit of land is, is in my opinion, uh, it is ridiculous. It's ludicrous to count that water as, uh, as part of the water footprint of beef. Yeah, I mean, I, it seems kind of crazy. You know, like I said, the water is going to fall one way or the other. One of the other points that you, you kind of touched on, I think this is a very, very important point that people understand, is the, the concept of cows upcycle. And I know that's with regard to protein because we can produce a lot of calories by just growing crops. But the problem is that nutrition is not very good quality nutrition. So you can feed a bunch of people a bunch of empty calories, high-carbohydrate diets, and you can do that uh, probably, you know, with less resource than you can with a, with a, with livestock. However, with the livestock, uh, we see this sort of upcycling. I've seen some of the data on there, something like 0.6, uh, you know, 0.6 kilos of, of protein, you know, on feed converts into one kilo of, of beef or, 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 or animal product, you know, whether it's milk or beef. And then let's talk about, because there's a, there's a push from uh, you know, investors, Bill Gates, uh, guys like Richard Branson, they're going to, they're going to bring this uh, factory-grown synthetic meat. Where are they going to get the amino acids to do that? Can they upcycle using that technology, or, or is a cow's room and unique uh, that, that we can do that? So your first question, um, the upcycling portion of particularly ruminant animals is fascinating because they take something that's non-human edible, that's high in cellulose, grass, or other forages, and they convert that through use of their rumen microbiology. They convert that non-human edible feedstuff into human edible protein. And that's what's called upcycling. So the number 0.6 that you quoted is 0.6 human edible into 1.0 human edible conversion, okay? So livestock, particularly ruminant livestock, consume a lot of non-human edible feedstuff, such as grass and legumes and so on, and they make it into human edible protein. If you were to be interested in the food item that has the lowest environmental footprint per calorie, the lowest environmental footprint per calorie, if that were our objective, to produce food that has the lowest environmental footprint per calorie, you know what you would produce? Sugar. That is the one that has the lowest environmental footprint per calorie. But are we as the United States calorie deprived? No, we certainly not. In fact, 
we have a, an overabundance of calories. Calories are not the problem here. The problem is not calories. The problem is nutrient-rich food because currently we are eating energy-rich food. We need nutrient-rich food. And animal protein is just that. Animal products are extremely nutrient-rich. You show me one. You show me one commodity other than a human, uh, other than a, uh, an egg, a poultry egg, which is more nutrient-rich. You will not find it. There's nothing more nutrient-rich than an egg. Or you show me any kind of plant-based alternative to, let's say, beef that comes even close to beef. There is none. What many of the critics do is this. Here's their strategy. They compare a kilogram of beans or lettuce or something to a kilogram of beef and say, you see, the environmental footprint is lower. But it's ridiculous to compare such drastically different nutritional items because the beef or the egg or the dairy is so much more nutrient-rich than all of these alternatives that is, is a, a huge uh, effort of misleading the public uh, as to what the better, from an environmental perspective, alternative uh, might be. Uh, these are comparisons that every intelligent person should refute. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think, like, at least in part, some of that comes from, like, as a society, we've, I think, erroneously, like, devalued the nutritional value of something like an egg or the fat of an animal or even the protein of an animal. And it's like, so for them to be able to pitch that idea sounds a lot nicer to someone who's been told their whole life, stay away from cholesterol, stay away from saturated fat, and limit the amount of, you know, animal proteins you're taking in. When in reality, I think when you kind of go at your nutrition in a little bit of a more of a nuanced way, you start seeing those things as very nutrient dense and beneficial for you when you put them in the right context. Yes. So another question you had was this. Um, how about these plant-based alternatives to meat? Um, are they nutritionally balanced? So can you get most of the nutrients that you obtain in animal-based diets, can you get them in plant-based diets too? The answer to that is yes. You can get them. But it is way, way more difficult to get them. And you need to have an array of, um, of plant-based food items that, um, that is needed to satisfy all of those different nutrient groups uh, that, that you, you need to obtain. So uh, let's say the amino acid profile of beef or of a glass of milk or an egg uh, can be obtained uh, with plant-based alternatives, but uh, it takes much more effort and in most cases is also quite a bit more expensive. And that's also something people often don't talk about. Uh, can you, for example, compare milk, dairy milk, with milk-based alternatives? Well, you could say that an alternative to dairy milk could be soy juice, uh, particularly if it's fortified. But almond juice or coconut juice or any of the others uh, will never reach the, the nutrient density of dairy milk. Okay, you will not reach that. Um, how about, uh, you know, other things like burgers and so on? We will find that there are alternatives to 
uh, a burger uh, that tastes like a burger. You know, you can go uh, you can go to restaurants and buy plant-based alternatives to burgers that taste pretty similar to a real burger. Okay, a meat lover would probably argue that, but most citizens would say, yeah, that tastes pretty much like a beef burger. Um, these things will have 40, 50, 60 ingredients. Uh, some of them will be GMO, and not that I'm critical of GMO, but some of the people who are critical of livestock are critical of GMO, uh, yet they do eat impossible burgers, let's say, which are GMO burgers. Um, and at the end of the day, the consumer needs to decide, do I want to eat a beef burger that has one ingredient, which is beef, or do I want one that has 50 ingredients? Uh, many of them are highly processed. Um, do I want that or do I not want that? Um, and I think the storyline that these people who sell these things, uh, the storyline that they use is one uh, that's oftentimes related to the environment. They are saying, for example, Patrick Brown, the owner of uh, Impossible Foods, Impossible Burgers, says that livestock is a prehistoric technology, the most destructive one on the planet today. Now, he says that, in my opinion, because um, it is the storyline that makes him sell burgers. But it is not a storyline that's based on reality and that's based on science. And it, uh, it really bothers me that people who are very intelligent like he is uh, use these kind of storylines to uh, mislead the public to believe that what he sells is better than the original, is better with respect to more sustainable to the environment, uh, better for human health and so on. Until recently, he didn't even have FDA approval to sell his bur his burgers. He wanted to sell them as, uh, as safe and then uh, was told by the FDA that his burgers contained 40 unexpected and six never-before-identified proteins. Now think about that. And that was the GMO portion of his burger and uh, it took him several months of finding out what these proteins actually were. Imagine McDonald's or somebody else being accused of selling a product that has 40 unexpected and six never-before-identified proteins in it. They would, they would probably have to shut down their shops. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's I mean. I I've looked at the. You know, I go to the store and I see these these sort of faux meat products, and I, and I flip them over and I see you know some sort of vegetable oil mixed with some kind of vegetable protein slurry with another 25 ingredients after. And there, there's no way I can I can even imagine that's that's whether even it's palatable or not, but 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 certainly good for the human uh, physiology. I don't think that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, but back to the other point, you know, besides these plant-based burger products, you know, there is this this push that they're going to do cell culture. Uh, technology, you know, they're going to take a they're going to take a cell from a cow, and you know, via you know bovine serum, and then some and some growth factors, and I assume mm -hmm. a steady supply of amino acids. They're going to, you know, synthetically make a meat patty. I mean, they're mm -hmm. already starting to do that and mass produce that, and and then their thing is it's going to come at a at a less of an environmental cost. Um, do you have an opinion on that? Um, yes. Uh, I do. Um, these so-called lab-grown meats, or um, they call them clean meats, I call them 
well, it doesn't matter what I call them. <laughs> you know, I think I think they are they are um, they are very problematic. Um, first of all, there's a huge ick factor involved. Um, the cells that they use are extracted from a uh, deceased fetus, a bovine fetus. So they're taking the stem cells out of a bovine fetus from a dead cow, and then they take that stem cell and they grow it in a petri dish. Um, what these lab-grown providers don't say is that these cells are very vulnerable to infection. Um, and as a result, they have to be grown under, under very totally sterile conditions. And not just that, uh, in many or most cases, these stem cells are grown on, um, on a medium that's soaked in antibiotics. So these stem cells are surrounded by antibiotics during the entire growth period. Um, many people who buy or who want to buy lab-grown meat do this because they say, oh, all this antibiotic use in livestock. <laughs> this is ridiculous. They should really look into how these stem cells are grown and what kind of effort it takes to grow them, not just with respect to keeping them safe and alive, but also growing them with respect to the energy needed to grow them, the water needed to grow them. These things produce waste. That waste needs to be um, disposed of. These things are very energy and resource intensive. And I think if the public were to know how these things are grown, they would just look away in disgust. But it hasn't happened yet that anybody pulled the pens down of these people producing that stuff or else there wouldn't be that discussion. Because I can put up with a lot, but when I see how that stuff's done, I just get disgusted. And how anybody can say that that is more sustainable for human health or planet health is beyond me. The only explanation I have is that people just don't know. I think that's a recurring thing. Dr. Mitlano, we got to respect your time. I know you have to go. It's been gracious for you to give us this time hopefully maybe we can get you back on down the road because i think there's this this is an ongoing discussion that needs to be had i think there's so much education we need to do and i know zach and i are trying to do our part to to, to sort of make that happen um where can people find you i know you're recently new to twitter and i've been enjoying some of your tweets is there a way for people to get a hold of you if they have more questions uh, sure i have uh a, i have a twitter handle which is ghggguru ghguru um, and then, of course, I'm at UC Davis, M Department of Animal Science. Um, my email is fmmitloehner at ucdavis.edu. Zach, anything last? Thank you so much. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And we will link some of that stuff to our show notes so uh, some of our listeners can come follow you on Twitter and other spots. Uh, um, but yeah, like Sean said, we'd love to have you back on down the road. Uh, but until then, uh, you know, keep doing, doing what you're doing. <laughs> Thank you. Good luck Thanks. to you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank Bye, you. Man. Hey folks. Thank you for tuning in to the human performance outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have butcher box sponsoring the show, a butcher box subscription plan uh, that will send you meat. So it's a real kind of hassle-free, don't have to go to the grocery store type of approach that gets you high-quality meat right to your door. Uh, Sean's been using ButcherBox for a while. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all 
uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing, or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store. This is actually a fair bit more economical, and so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome, yeah. And folks, if you want to support the show, go over to ButcherBox, get yourself an order of some high quality meat, and type in the promo code HPO, and you'll get a discount as well as some free bacon, and you can eat that meat knowing that you help keep this podcast going. Thanks again. Back to the show. Hey, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd, that's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker, 1967, that's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R, 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.